0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to Spycast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. There are 535 members of the 114th Congress, the Congress that currently serves here in Washington, D.C. Most of them, at one point before they came to federal politics, had some other kind of career, some other kind of job. There were 100 members who worked at some point in education. 18 physicians, 3 dentists, 3 veterinarians, 4 nurses, 7 ordained ministers, 39 former mayors, 18 former state governors and lieutenant governors, 15 former judges, 43 prosecutors, 3 ambassadors, at least 102 congressional staffers, as well as 7 congressional pages, 6 from the world of law enforcement, 4 Peace Corps volunteers, 3 scientists and 8 engineers, 22 public relations or communications professionals. 19 insurance agents, 29 farmers or ranchers. There's even two almond orchard owners, as well as two vintners. But there's only one former CIA operations officer. And normally I say we're joined today by our guest, whoever that may be. But today we're on location. I'm actually in the office of Representative Will Hurt of the 23rd District of Texas, which stretches an absurd 800-plus miles from San Antonio to El Paso along the U.S.-Texas border. Congressman Heard graduated from Texas A&M University in 2000 with a degree in computer science and a minor in international relations. Heard worked for the Central Intelligence Agency for nine years, including a tour of duty as an operations officer in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. He returned to Texas after a CIA service and was a partner in the strategic advisory firm Crumpton Group, which was actually founded by former CIA officer and counterterrorism director Henry Hank Crumpton. After which, he was a senior advisor with a cybersecurity firm, Fusion X. He was elected to Congress in November of 2014, and he took office this past January on the 3rd of 2015, which makes him, in congressional parlance, a freshman member. He serves on two major committees, the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, where he's on the National Security Subcommittee, and he's the chairman of the Information Technology Subcommittee. He's also on the House Committee on Homeland Security, where he's the Vice Chair of Border and Maritime Security Subcommittee and on the Counterterrorism and Intelligence Subcommittee. Congressman Hurd, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today.
1: Thanks for coming over to the Hill.
0: So a lot of our listeners, a lot of the people that are going to be watching this or listening to this, are young people in high school and college, and they're trying to figure out ways to get into the world of intelligence. Now, you still, because you're very recently separated from the agency, can only say so much. You have secret, se- secrecy limitations to what you can say, but I think it's always interesting to ask about the recruitment story, about how did you get into CIA? What drew you to this career?
1: Sure, I, and I w- also want to start off with saying that it's one of the best jobs on the planet. Being a case officer for the National Clandestine Service or the Do, I'm still old school, right? And I'll, I'll call it the Do. You know, it started with me. I, I was a computer science major. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and. I thought I was going to be a programmer for IBM when I graduated. And I had never been outside of Texas um, until my freshman year. And I saw a sign on the campus that said, take two journalism classes in Mexico City for $425. And I had $450 in my bank account. So I went to Mexico City, fell in love being with another culture, fell in love with, you know, experiencing, you know, uh, different types of people. And I added international studies as a minor. First class I took, a former CIA officer was the guest lecturer. Um, he had, when he, when he retired from the agency, he was the, the ADDO for CI. So he was the most important guy on counterintelligence mm-hmm. in the agency. He had been, um, he had run the office in Mexico City, old school Cold Warrior, and he told the most amazing stories. And literally the next day, I went and knocked on his door And said, "Tell me more," and that began began my interest um, in in the CIA. Um, So we stayed friends. I applied when um, after I graduated. I got accepted pretty quickly into the DS and T, but I knew I wanted to be the DO. And at the time, um, um, uh, Doctor Gates, Mm -hmm. you know, was former um, head of the CIA. He was the interim head of the Bush School at Texas a and and he said, Will, you really should pursue um, the, the D.O., and was able to get my application in that, and went through the application process and interview process, and, and the rest is history. But I think what, what um, made me competitive, because there's not many people straight out of undergraduate right. um, school that go, that go into the clandestine service, um, part of it was my international experience, was my studying abroad in Mexico. I worked in a factory that manufactured integrated circuits in the Philippines. Okay. You know, I did some uh, leadership programs um, where I was bringing freshmen in, teaching them about leadership in Italy. Um, so I, I had some experience overseas, and so that's what they're looking for. You know, I spoke some um, decent Spanish at the time. Agencies always looking for people that speak another language. Right. And then, you know, my leadership activities when I was in college. Um, I, you know, I was student body president at Texas A&M. I had run our our student union the year before, and so those were the kinds of things that, that rounded it out. And then, of course, my GPA was was where um, they were where they were looking for. That's all.
0: I mean, it, it's like I quit it sometimes, especially to high school students of getting into Yale or getting into Harvard. Everybody is smart who applies. Sure. Everybody has got a great background. They got all good grades. It's, it's the, the little things that, that make you stand apart. From everybody else. And you had several of those. I mean, and I think people are trying to latch on to like what makes me different.
1: Right? You know? Well the other interesting thing about the CIA is they're not gonna tell you anything about the CIA when you're going through the interview process. So <laughs> they expect you to know it. And right. and that's why reading books, you know, my former business partner talked about um, Ambassador Hank Crumpton, you know, he has a great book out there, The Art of Intelligence, mm-hmm. you know, and that really is kind of like a primer. It's almost like a 101 on what it means to be a case officer in the CIA. So people are expected to know something about the job because the CIA is going to invest a whole lot of money in you, and they want to make sure that you're in it for the long term, that you have, you know, um, that you're ready for this job, and this is something that you're ready to make a a career.
0: And you you came into the CIA in 2000, and you went through training, and that stretched into 2001, and then, of course... 9-11 9-11 happened. Right. How much did that change your direction or, or, or did it? I
1: mean, You know, so so the day I left San Antonio, Texas, and my Toyota 4Runner to drive to Washington, D.C. to start my job was the day of the of the USS Cole was blown up in the Gulf of Aden off the coast of Yemen. Right. Um, so I remember I was, you know, filling up with gas and I was going in to pay and you see on the TV. You know, what had happened, I thought, Am I ever going to am I ever know what's going on? I'm getting ready to start in the CIA. And after I go through our initial training, I was the desk officer for Yemen. So I was okay. the guy back in, in headquarters supporting the field. And I even, you know, my first, my first trip was pretty, it was only a couple of months after being in that I went to Sana'a, Yemen, and, and supported the station there. So, so Al-Qaeda began my career um, when, when 9-11 happened. Um, I was actually in a training course in Northern Virginia, and at 2 a.m. that evening or in the morning, I got a phone call from a former boss, and he said, report to the basement, certain office in the basement of the old headquarters building, or excuse me, the new headquarters mm-hmm. building. And I was the fourth employee okay. in CTCSO, which was oh, the wow, okay. Counterterrorism Center of Special Operations. Right. Um, and that was the unit that ultimately prosecuted the war um, in Afghanistan helped infiltrate almost 100 CIA officers um, to bring al-Qaeda and the Taliban to justice. And to
0: do that effectively, Spanish wasn't going to be something you were going to put <laughs> into play. Uh, um, you're, you're very famously, or at least were, a, a pretty exceptional Urdu speaker. I, mean, it, I don't it, know about you, exceptional. Well, <laughs> at least, uh, certainly enough to get by. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, that, that came into play?
1: Sure. When, um, you know, my first tour after training was, was New Delhi. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do that Was you didn't need another language Mm -hmm. um, to to be effective there in New Delhi, but Hindi is still spoken a lot. So so I ended up having an ear for Hindi, and you hear it you hear it everywhere. And after India, you know, it's basically going to go either to Pakistan, Afghanistan, or Iraq. And I thought Pakistan would make sense. Mm -hmm. You know, similar issues that you're dealing with in India, but basically opposite side. And I had you know a number of weeks of of Urdu. Um, They Urdu and Hindi. The same spoken language, just the script is different. Okay, and so I was—I was, I was um, I, my speaking was good enough. When I was lo- wearing local local clothes and I had my beard grown out, I'd get the locals' discount in the bazaar. <laughs> you know, um, so so it was good enough to do that. Yeah, I, I was going to gonna say there,
0: there's an advantage. We talked about all the different things that the CIA is looking for. Is uh, C no matter how good my resume is, it's it's unlikely that I'm going to be chosen to work undercover inside the Middle East or Latin America. I just don't have – you know, if they're sending me into Russia, that's one thing. But the <laughs> blonde hair and green eyes, it, you know, you, you, you're you the ambiguous ethnicity. You probably could go to Latin America. You could probably go to Africa. Right. You could probably go to the Middle East. And you have the opportunity to blend in wherever. I mean, I think that that's a huge advantage. It,
1: it's, it's an advantage for sure. But I'm also, you know – you know, people thought when I was speaking in those bazaars in Pakistan, I was the biggest Pakistani they'd ever seen. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was twice their size. But but that helped. But but you'd be in, you'd be surprised uh, when I was in Afghanistan. I managed all of our undercover operations, and my most effective officers were were young females. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, one of my one was was about five foot two and and blonde and. Um, her call sign was it was it was an Urdu word and it basically translated into like wraith or boogeyman or boogeywoman, right and and so so you 'd be surprised that uh, folks of all kinds um, were were effective um, throughout that part of the world
0: what one of the real interesting things that I think that you can bring to bear that none of our podcast guests could ever bring to bear before was that you've been on both sides of the dissemination of intelligence issue. Uh, no matter how good your collection is, no matter how good your egghead analysts are, uh, if you can't explain things to policymakers in such a way that they can do the actual action, because the CIA and the intelligence agencies aren't policymakers, you actually have to convince members of Congress and people at the White House to actually do what you want or that you think they should do. Um, there's a story about you, and you can certainly go into this more, uh, about being inspired at an early stage at the agency to do something about one of the reasons you ran for Congress was that you had members who had gone on a CODEL, who had traveled to Afghanistan, and they just didn't know anything. They didn't know the difference between Sunnis and Shiites. They didn't understand really the most important things that you needed to understand in order to make policy. Can you talk a little bit about how now you've seen it from both sides?
1: No, look, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I was frustrated. One of the reasons I decided to run for Congress was I was shocked by the caliber of our elected leaders. Um, you know, especially when they're on the committees. You know, the, the, the story you're referencing, um, the member that asked me what the difference was between a Sunni and a Shia had been on the House Intelligence Committee for six years. It's okay for my brother not to right. not to understand the difference because he sells cable, right? But for someone who's spending, you know, billions of our, our hard-earned taxpayer dollars, who's sending our boys and, and girls into places like Afghanistan or Yemen or or Syria, it's it, it's unacceptable to me, and and so so what's what's great is that I've been there, I've seen it, I've chased Al Qaeda, I've chased you know Iranian nuclear pr- proliferators, you know I was seeing what the Russians and Chinese state sponsored hackers were were doing to to our infrastructure, so I, I've seen I've seen that issue. Um, you know, you look at the border. I've 820 miles of the border, mm-hmm. as you talked about at the beginning of the show. Um, I know the threat, Go and on. so so I'm able to give a perspective um, that many other folks don't have. And 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 perfect example is, you know, it, it's great that I have chairman of subcommittee or chairman of committees coming and asking uh, for my opinion. Um, because they know I, I have an expertise. In and that periods. was going
0: to be my next question. I mean, you're one of 435. Right. How do you educate everybody else? How do you do how – do, how do we – I mean, we're, we're an educational institution ourselves. Right. How do we do a better job educating members about intelligence? Because it's incredibly complex. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Iran is one of a great example about this. You're, you're expecting people to make educated decisions. But – talk about how complex it is. You're talking about nuclear physics. You're talking about economic policy and the sanctions and the crazy alliances in the Middle East, all in one specific issue. And of course, this is the future of you know, the world. Right. And we're making decisions here as the most powerful nation in the world. How do we ensure that the people making these decisions have any idea what they're talking about? Uh, is there a sol- I mean, I'm not putting you on the spot to come up with a solution here. I mean, I know people are smart. I, I know that you don't make it to this level without being incredibly intelligent. But it's, it's got to be difficult to keep everything together. I mean, I know from my, my experience... You at least are on committees related to your background. Right. I know there are members that are on committees that have nothing to do with their background, and once at least your two committees mm-hmm. are related to each other, right? You right? you're not on agriculture and appropriations. You're not on HHS and transportation. Mm-hmm. You can actually really hone in on the stuff you know a little bit about. That's not true for everybody else. Uh, how do
1: we fix that? I mean, you, you know, one of the one of the things that would would frustrate me when I was when I was still in the CIA were all the CODOs, the congressional mm-hmm. delegations that came out to whatever embassy or station I was at. But you know I was frustrated because it took a lot of time to put them on. But what I've found is that those things are so important to help the rank and file member understand what's, what's really going mm-hmm. on. Um, and and that, that's half of it. You know I talk about the border a lot. right? I talk about border security. And for me, we can secure our border and facilitate the movement of goods and services at the same time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people talk about the border up here. So I've taken a couple of other members. I'm down there to see it firsthand, right? And and there's nothing better than getting that than getting that that perspective. Getting people
0: out of the Washington bubble. Uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And, and 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 you know what? The the members are responsive to that. They they understand that. You know, I think most people know. You know, they know what they know. They know what they don't know. But what they don't know, they don't, yeah. don't know. I think they recognize as is the, the largest of, of those three categories. And so part of that is is being willing to speak up on a lot of these issues. And again, folks know my background and experience right. and they've come and reached out, you know, at the very beginning of of um, policy discussions or, or formulating um, legislation. And so that's great. And I've only been here for thirteen weeks. Right. You know. I, other than the
0: specific information you have based on your background, like you know about certain parts of the world or other things. Yeah. What are the lessons learned from your agency background, from just intelligence tradecraft and intelligence operations that you've been able to bring to Congress with you? you know, because it's, it's, again, you are the unique person in Congress. It's not like a doctor can bring you know, real understanding of precise scientific information or a lawyer knows the law. You've got the one thing nobody else has. Like, What lessons learned have you brought with you to Congress?
1: Well, the first one, I, yeah. I've learned uh, politics is a full contact sport, you know, <laughs> and the other side you know, oftentimes tries to take pictures of you and follow you. And it's like, you know, some 19-year-old kid in a single car is not going to – I'm going to be able to detect that surveillance. Right, um, yeah, so you have certain advantages over uh, trackers <laughs> right, and other right. things that others might but, not. But but just the, the principles and theories of being an intelligence officer, right? So take whatever the issue is, whether it's in agriculture or trade or, you know, you name it. Part of it is making sure – you know, I – you talk to different people, right? What makes the CIA the gold standard in, in, in intelligence is we talk to everyone. We collect intelligence from all levels of society, right? right? And that's what, you know, our analyst is able to put together and formulate. So I take that same strategy here. Whatever the topic is, I try to get people on both sides of the topic, I, you know, people throughout my different district, in order when you start getting that information, you see where it's overlapping you start getting close to, you know, some kernels of, of truth. Right. So, so that, that is the strategy I do in, in preparing myself um, for votes or, um, you know, how we're going to handle a particular issue. Uh, the other thing that's helpful is, is I've just been named or recently named um, to the foreign fighter, foreign fighter Task Force looking at Westerners and Americans that are going into Syria and Iraq to, to fight with ISIS. Mm-hmm. I understand the community. Right. I know how it works. I know the role between NCTC and CTC within the CIA. I understand the TIE database and watch listing. So that helps me uh, create uh, the right kinds of questions. Right? right. You know, that's 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 how it, you that's can have it. your intelligence, yeah. you know, you, you have your requirements, right? But you know, you gotta be able to ask the right questions and then understanding access, you know. Before you recruit, you know, an agent. The number one question you always ask is, do they have the right access? Do they have access to something that the federal government cares about? Right. Right? And that's going to answer one of our intelligence requirements. Same thing goes for, you know, you have a limited amount of time, so you've got to really focus on that. So these are all right. the, the principles and theories that, that, you know, I still use now. Um, you know as a member of Congress,
0: yeah i mean I, I can see directly how especially the analytical side things mm-hmm. can apply, or the the avoiding the cognitive biases right. of the analytical right. side, avoiding the the mirror imaging, avoiding the the eye you know only listening to what you, the, what you want to hear confirmation bias, right. uh, how that plays a role and, and that 's refreshing to hear right. you don 't tend to see that a whole lot right. here on the hill, um,
1: but you know another area of familiarization right. When you're a new case officer and you're in a new area, the first thing you always do, AFAM, AFAM, AFAM. Get out there, understand the, the city that you're operating in, understand those neighborhoods. So, you know, I look at my job when I crisscross these 29 counties is I'm always getting area familiarization. You know, I was born and raised in San Antonio, right? So I know San Antonio with the back of my hand. There are some of these other communities that I haven't spent that much time in. Yeah, I mean,
0: central for those central Texas, West Texas, very almost almost different states. Yeah,
1: very different. So I'm always getting out there and talking to people and understanding the community, and that's something that that I did for almost a decade uh, when I was in the CIA, and it's something I enjoy doing. Um, So I I never. How much did you enjoy doing it here in Washington? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I lived I lived here for two years as a trainee, so I, I got I got used to I got used to. With the district. So what your,
0: your committee, especially the Homeland Security mm-hmm. Committee, you are on the, the Counterterrorism and Intelligence Subcommittee. Yeah. That primarily focuses on domestic mm-hmm. situation, domestic intelligence. Uh, your background, your, your almost decade at CIA, of course, is foreign intelligence. Mm-hmm. Are there similarities? Are they, are they dramatically different? Can, does it, everything cross over? I mean, John Kennedy famously said trying to separate foreign and domestic policy was like trying to draw a line through water. It's just impossible to do. do you see the same thing when it deals with foreign versus domestic intelligence
1: yeah when when you know I think the the big issue for domestic intelligence is homeland security right, and so it's protecting the homelands from threats and and you have some some locally grown issues right but a lot of them are stuff that's coming from from outside outside our borders. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be a connection and an overlap and, an, and an interconnection. But what, what has been interesting for me is when you deal with border patrol or ICE, you know, Immigration and Customs um, Enforcement, and the various fusion centers, right? all of these folks, you know, the way, that, the way that we're going to be able to use our resources better is in intelligence-led activities, right? And so it's, it's, it's understanding the, the principles and theories of intelligence collection, and using that, and adapting those techniques, you know, to our some of our, our civilian or, mm-hmm. or, or federal agencies that are, that are working here, right? So whether you're trying to develop, you know, understanding of how drugs are being smuggled along, you know, Interstate 10, you know, that goes, you know, from Houston to El Paso. Right, or if it actually goes from Florida to California, yeah. but the part in Texas, right? You know, it, it's it's those same things, and so so I'm able to go and talk to some of these these agencies and making sure that they're using that they're using intelligence um, to drive to drive their operations.
0: One one thing people misunderstand about the intelligence community is they're, they're assuming the CI director is walking into the White House, the Oval Office, saying, "Here's what you should do, Mr. President. Here's the policy you should do." The intelligence community doesn't make policy. They advise, they provide information, but policymakers make policy. Members of Congress, the White House. You now have been on both sides of that issue as well, where you were at CIA, you may run into problems. You talk about Pakistan with the ISI. Right? Every, anyone who's worked in Pakistan has their ISI stories. They love them, they hate them both at the same time. Now you are a policymaker. Now you can actually affect change in some of the things that you saw as an intelligence agent. Again, get, without getting too specific, if you can't, based on sec- security reasons, how has that dynamic been interesting to you?
1: Well, it's it's you get you're in a position to fix all the things that you thought were broken before, right? right? So it, it's a great place to be. Um, you know, a lot of the things I saw, you know, are are you know, it, it's something it's something as simple as what's on the NIPF, the National Intelligence Priority Framework, right? I can. I saw how you know, as a case officer, I would love to have collected more on a particular topic, mm-hmm. but I couldn't because it wasn't on that that list of priorities. And so, being in a position to say, "Hey, we should focus here," um, is is a great place to be. Um, but still, I have to convince you know many of my other colleagues that this is the right thing to do. Right. Um, so, so it's it's about it's it's being in a position to to get some things done. Right. Uh, when you look at and when you look at Syria, one of the biggest issues we're having right now uh, in the fight against ISIS is the lack of, of human intelligence right. on the issue. And part of that is because of, of a lack of, of resources um, in that region. And so this is something where you know, I can have a role in talking about this and work with my colleagues um, to make sure we have the coverage that we need.
0: We, we talked about your, your major in college was computer science. Mm-hmm. And then after CIA, you worked for a cybersecurity firm. Relatively recently, it's now been a little bit a long, more than a year. Cybersecurity is now the number one national security threat to the United States. It was terrorism for about a decade and a half. Now terrorism is number two, and cyber is number one. Can you talk a little bit about that threat, and then what you think your experience can bring to bear on helping us deal with that threat? Sure. Uh,
1: the reason, you know, the interesting thing about about uh, the cybersecurity threat is is a micro actor can have a macro impact. So, you know, that, and that's similar um, in terrorism right. as well. And that there are a lot of people that have the the, the tools and the know how in order to you know hack um, some system. And and what what is changing is now that if you gives me enough time, I'm gonna get into your system. Mm-hmm. Right? So we need to begin with the presumption of breach. Who is you know? Can you detect? How quickly can you detect me? How, how much can you corral whoever the, the, the attacker is, and then can you bloom off the system? Right? That's some of the, the, the details. But there's some big questions that we haven't answered. If North Korea were to launch a missile into San Francisco, we know how we would respond, and the North Koreans know how we right. respond. That's a physical-on-physical attack. The idea of a digital-on-physical attack, we know that a little bit. It's Stuxnet right? Right. from a couple of years ago. But what constitutes a digital on digital attack? What's, what's a digital act of war? Right. There, isn't a, there isn't a commonly accepted you know, definition of that. right. And these are some of the very basic questions that we need to come together and answer as the whole of government and in order to start plotting you know, how we defend against that. Right. And we'll also see some, 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 some changes to who's doing what, knowing that, hey, if you do this, this is going to be considered a digital act of war, and these are these are the the appropriate countermeasures. The
0: trick, of course, is how do you prove which state actor? You know, now, there's attacks right. that come from Russia, but are they coming from the Russian government, or are they coming from some internet cafe right. somewhere in Moscow? Same with China. Um, and, and the real big question will be exactly, how, as you said, when we can have a smoking gun saying this was right. the Russian government, this is the Chinese right. government, how do we react to that? And I know... The Pentagon, certainly, I guess the, the science board of the Pentagon has actually said, we treat this as a nuclear attack right. on the United States. So there's, there's some real questions, in, and, and there, there needs to be some serious people that are having
1: this conversation. Absolutely. Look, attribution yeah. is, is a huge issue, and, and you know, a validating identity is also a, a big issue in in the digital space, and this is one of those, those topics that we're going to need our smartest minds you know working on this is why you know we need our kids to be going into these areas because right. we 're going to have to start training our 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 kids for jobs that don 't exist today right um, and that 's the only way that we're going to be able to stay um, stay ahead of the game and, and stay you know reporting into the sphere
0: so you 're one of the younger members of Congress. you have a computer background. my mom is the age of the average member of Congress she 's lucky if she knows where to turn on the computer How, how do we educate? And no, no, I mean, the build, no disrespect to those who don't have a background in computer science or don't have the basic understanding of what cyber is all about. But this may even be a bigger problem than talking about Iranian, Iranian nukes or, or any other bigger intelligence question is cyber is incredibly advanced for a lot of people. How do you teach an old dog new tricks in this case? How do you, how do you disseminate information about how much of a threat this is to people that just don't have the background?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the best, the way I've been effective is to, to use analogies that, that folks can, can understand on, on whatever the topic is, um, not get too detailed. You know, one of my jobs when I was helping to build Fusion X was communicating the technical piece to the C-suite, to the executives, right, right who may not be necessarily technical. Um, but uh, but I've been surprised that people understand kind of the 30,000-foot view, um, but the devil's in the details. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting ready. Uh, we passed um, some historic cybersecurity information-sharing legislation um, the last two days here right. so in the House. It's likely to pass the Senate. And the president are, has already si- said he's going to sign it. And he's t- talking about information-sharing, well, the first step is, what information are you sharing? Right? What needs to be shared? You know, what kind of, you know, if you're, the federal government's trying to help the private sector to protect itself. You know, they're going to need information that's timely, and they're going to, need, to be, need information that's actionable, right? And that level of granularity and detail is going to, is, is going to be developed by people that understand these issues, like but, you. Yeah. I
0: mean, that, that 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 bill, which you know, this will end up maybe being seen by somebody in two years from now, but that that bill, uh, it seems right, like right down your alley. How, was that something you worked on, or is it something that you? you Gave amendments to that you were involved in the the passing of well, the bill. I've,
1: I've been I've been involved in that since since day one um, on the homeland security bill and and part of that is is working with the private sector on what other issues they needed, um, working with the staff um, that was helping to draft the legislation. Uh, John Ratcliffe, who's the chairman of the subcommittee for Cybersecurity and homeland, um, Mike McCall um, was great. I've offered three amendments. They all got accepted. Uh, I think one of my amendments was probably the most technical part of of the of the entire bill. Um, and so, you know, you're working with the privacy communities because we, we can we can protect our digital infrastructure and our civil liberties at the exact same time. Right. We must. Right. And and so that's something you know that I'm I'm, I'm glad that I was able to bring that bring that perspective
0: because people always talk about this balance or this trade off or finding the right spot, but the right way to do it is to do both at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah. Um,
1: Look, you know, you, you always got to remember, terrorists are trying to do two things. They're trying to kill a lot of people, and they're also trying to elicit counterterrorism responses that foment discord, right? And so when you have a good part of your electorate upset with something, as a war fighter, that's the last place you want to be. You don't want people that you're trying to protect distrustful of what you're doing. And so we always have to make sure that we're protecting the civil liberties enshrined in our Constitution.
0: So I, I wasn't going to ask this question. It's not on my list, but I can't help from looking behind you. And I'm not sure if it's picking up on the camera or not. You have a massive knife in your case behind you. And, of course, you have a propaganda poster uh, from the Second World War period that someone talked. Let's start with the knife because I can't help from but seeing that massive knife. A little bit of the backstory behind that.
1: You know that was what was given to all the the case officers that had spent time um, in 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 Pakistan, and it's a it's a, it's a modification of a of a Gurkha knife. Um, the Gurkhas were you know fierce warriors um, throughout India and, and Pakistan, and so that was kind of a little commemoration of the time spent um in in the islamic Republic um so yeah, and, and then this 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 poster it's just i i got to, I saw it um during a tour of the national archives, and I thought it was great yeah, it 's perfect the Yeah, background. and the one next to you um, is oh, wow. a radar plot from opana um, this was a radar station north of honolulu, and this is a radar plot from December 7th, 1941. Okay. And when this was being explained to me, you know, this was the first time radar had been used in military operations. And at 7:04, two privates got a got a, a bleep. Um, and at 7 a.m., all the communication stations um, stopped communicating. And their senior officer said, Oh, it's probably some B-17s coming back from, right. from the mainland. And they kept plotting at 7:45, 7:44. They turned the machine off, and then at seven fifty-seven, Pearl Harbor was bombed. Right, yeah. and you know when I saw this, I had not heard the, this story or, or seen this radar plot, but I hang it right there on my wall because this is an example of intelligence failure. Right, you know having been in the CIA um, during nine eleven and knowing, you know, people were like, "Something's going on. There's a lot of chatter. We're nervous. That something big's going to happen," right. and having that happen, you know, it, being part of that, this to me is an example. Of what we got to make sure we can prevent in the future, and I'm in a position to, yeah. try to do something about it. Absolutely,
0: awesome. I mean that's most people don't understand this idea about splitting noise from signals, <laughs> and uh, and you know that's a great 9/11 Pearl Harbor great examples of where you know in hindsight we're like, how did you miss this? Right. And of course, that's the same with 9/11 as well. It would be wonderful if it didn't take till hindsight before we're picking up on these signals. Right. Um, I, Congressman Hurt, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today. I know you're incredibly busy, uh, but we really appreciate you talking to us here at the National Spy Museum, and you got to come down first chance you get. We'd be happy to show you around, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast@spymuseum.org. at spy dot org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.